You're listening to Ecclesia, a study of church history, part of the podcast ministry of Sycamore Baptist Church in Decatur, Texas. My name is CJ Frazier. I'm the senior pastor here at Sycamore Baptist Church, and I would like to personally invite you to join us for worship. For more information about our church, please visit www.sycamoredecatur.com. And now, we hope you enjoy this session's podcast on church history. Well, again, I want to welcome you to our study of church history. I've entitled this study Ecclesia, and there's a reason for that. We'll get to that here in just a moment. But in this first session, what I really want to do is I just want to introduce the idea of church history for us and really give a definition for what we mean whenever we say that we are studying church history. What is church history? More importantly, what is the church? Because if we can't define what a church is, then we're going to have a really hard time understanding what church history is. The two are linked together, the history of the church and the definition of what the church is. And so we've entitled this study Ecclesia, and the word Ecclesia is the Greek word in the New Testament for church. We'll look at that word here in a little bit. But even if you are completely unfamiliar with the Greek language, and even if you are much less likely to have heard of that Greek word ecclesia. It's my prayer that by the time we are finished with our study, that that word would become one of the most meaningful words in your entire vocabulary. Because it's meaningful in the pages of Scripture, and it has been meaningful to virtually every Christian who has ever lived throughout the history of Christ's church. And so in this first session, as I mentioned, we're going to walk through just an introduction to church history. And I'm reminded of, now I love sports, and so it's hard for me sometimes to refrain from using analogies. But for those who are familiar with the legendary football coach, Vincent Lombardi, I mean, his name speaks for itself. And his name, in fact, is so synonymous with football that it's the name of the Super Bowl trophy. It's called the Vince Lombardi Trophy. Vince Lombardi was the first coach of the Green Bay Packers, which was the first team to ever win the Super Bowl. And Vince Lombardi has just always been a name that was, as I mentioned, synonymous with football. Well, on the first day of team camp every year, Coach Lombardi would walk into the locker room surrounded by professional football players. And he would have, holding in his hand, he would have a football, and he would look at them square in the eye and say, gentlemen, this is a football. Now, I obviously was not in any of those situations when Coach Lombardi would open team camp with the same illustration year after year, but I can imagine that it probably conjured some chuckles. Uh, Perhaps there were those who wondered if this man really knew that much about the game of football as he claimed to know. But what we recognize in that illustration is that it's very important when you are studying a subject to begin at the very basics. And the same is certainly true when it comes to church history. So my, my goal for this first session is really just to whet our appetites for this study by defining what it is that we are going to study. So we could ask it this way. 
what is a church? That's a basic question, but it's critical for us to know the answer to that question as we learn about the subject. Now, the obvious answer that you probably have heard in various circles is that the church is not a building. The church is the people who occupy the building, and that certainly is true. But as we look specifically to the scriptures, how do the scriptures define for us what a church is? Before we get to the scriptures themselves, I want to start with recognizing that there are many places where people gather for worship, and they claim that their gathering is a church. I'm reminded of four recent images that I've seen, each of them depicting a different setting of so-called Christian worship. I'll describe each of them for you. The first was from a so-called church named Liquid Church in New York State. And this photo that I saw, really was a video. It was of a so-called woman pastor, and she was standing up to preach, and she was giving a sermon based off the recently released summer blockbuster movie, The Barbie Movie. She was decked out in hot pink. She acknowledged that they had encouraged their entire so-called church to do the same for that particular Sunday morning, and she was delivering a sermon that was based off of that movie and and so-called lessons that Christians could learn from that movie. Well, we move from there to another picture that I recently saw on the Heart Cry Missionary Society website, and it was a much different setting. It was also a gathering of those who were claiming that they were there to worship, but these individuals were worshiping near a river, and in the photo you could see one individual holding an umbrella for another individual who was leading the service, which indicates that they were outside while it was raining. Again, two very different pictures, two very different ideas, two very different philosophies and definitions for what a church is to look like. The third image that I recently saw was from a church in California. It's a very famous church, or I could say perhaps even infamous church, Saddleback Church in California. And this image, and taken from a video that I saw, was much like the first image that I mentioned. It was a church that was having a sermon series called At the Movies, where every sermon was based upon a certain movie. But this church service opened with a husband and wife duo who were both said to be co-pastors of that church, and they came out on the platform dressed as Toy Story characters. The man who was obviously dressed as Woody looked to his wife, and he asked her, are you at church? And she responded, well, yes, I am. Yes, we are. We are at church. Finally, the fourth picture that I would give for you to consider was another meeting of worshipers in Peru, and it was a very humble setting, and it was nothing more than a man with a very simple wooden pulpit. I would you know, even uh, question to define it as a pulpit the way that you and I in Western society would think of as a pulpit. It was more like a, a glorified lectern that you could tell had just been put together by those who were not professionals. But he was standing and he was preaching from the Bible. As we consider those four different images of what a so-called church 
looks like. We need to take a few things away from those images. First and foremost is this, that any gathered setting of so-called Christians can claim to be a church. But just as we saw a tremendous contrast between the two sets or the two different settings of worship mentioned between those two different types of gathered uh, so-called believers, we can also see that there is a difference between a true church and a church that is a bogus church. And so rather than just asking the question, what is a church, I think it's also helpful to replace one word of that sentence, to replace the word a with the word the, and ask the question, what is the church? And as we do that, let's also capitalize the letter C in the word church. Because when we're talking about the church, we're talking about a proper noun. We're no longer talking about any individual gathered collection of believers or those who claim to be believers, but we're now talking about the church as a whole, which would encompass every local body of believers. So in order to illustrate how there are certain groups who claim to be a part of the larger body of the church or claim to be the whole church itself, let me just give you seven different groups that claim either to be part of or the whole of the capital C church. First, I would call to your consideration Christian science. Now, this is not to be confused with Scientology. It's a separate movement. Christian science claims to be part of the church. They claim to be a Christian group. There is also the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You may be more familiar with them by their other name, the Mormons, the Mormon Church. The Mormon Church, as it began, at least, it originally began as the belief that it was the one true church, that it was coming uh, from Joseph Smith to replace the corrupted church, and that all those who belonged to the, G the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints were the only true believers on planet Earth. Next, let's consider a denominational group known as the Presbyterian Church in America. Now, as I mentioned, that is simply a Christian denomination. They're not claiming to be the whole, the entirety of the capital C church, but they certainly are claiming to be part of it. You could also think of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. There again, another group that claims to be one subset, one denomination of the capital C church. But any close look at the doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist Church would leave us to conclude that they are not part of the true church. Now, our church is a Southern Baptist church, and so I would be remiss if I didn't include the Southern Baptist Convention under that consideration under the uh, up for discussion as to whether or not the Southern Baptist Convention is part of the capital C church. It's important for us to evaluate every group that considers itself part of the church. Then think about another group which meets here in Decatur, Texas, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower Society, again, claiming to be part of the one true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, another denominational group, the United Methodist Church. And if you know much about the United Methodist Church here in the United States of America, you know recently there have been no shortage of theological discussions 
and arguments uh, within this denomination of the capital C church. Well, all of that, I hope, is a little bit of brain food, (laughs) a little bit uh, to consider and to chew on. As we now begin to tighten down more on our definition of what the church, capital C church, actually is. In seminary, one of the first things that you will learn in a study of church history is that there are two ways to think about the church as we survey it throughout Christian history. The first way that we can think about the church is the visible church. And as the word visible indicates, this would be the visible people who are claiming to be part of the capital C church. Every group, every individual, every denomination, every movement that claims to be Christian is claiming to be part of that visible church. But what you learn also in seminary and what you learn in theology and the study of church history generally is not only is there a visible church, but there is also, and you may have guessed it, an invisible church. And the invisible church is those people throughout church history who actually are in the church. I hope you can see the difference there, no pun intended, that just because a group claims to be part of the church, just because you visibly can look at them and see their their claims to Christianity does not mean that they are, in fact, part of the redeemed family of God. A seminary professor that I had once gave a great illustration for this. He said, wouldn't it be nice if upon uh, an individual's birth and for the rest of their life, the Lord Jesus would put a light bulb above their head? And that light bulb would be only one of two colors. It would either be green to indicate that they were Christian or red to indicate that they were not Christian. It would be wonderful if there were some sort of visible marker that came with every individual who claimed, at least, to be a Christian, to know whether or not they were genuine in their faith. And certainly the Scripture does point to the fact that there is fruit to be borne by the genuine believer, just as Jesus said, you would know false teachers by their fruits. But in terms of the church itself, there is the visible church, those claiming to be part of the church, and there is the invisible church, those who actually are in the church. In church history, we need to know this for a reason. Church history follows the story of the church, the capital C church, both visible and invisible. So any good textbook on church history is going to identify faithful groups of Christians as well as those who were less faithful or those who were illegitimate altogether. Church history is going to deal with not just the invisible church, because the invisible church at times can be difficult to identify, but it's going going to deal with every group that is claiming to be part of the church. And that's a great thing. It's a great thing to study true Christianity and, and also to survey what 
illegitimate Christianity has looked like throughout the ages. Because we're going to see how each of those groups navigates the so-called Christian life. How do those who are truly in Christ flesh out their beliefs? And how do those who have abhorrent beliefs, those who have divergent beliefs from true and, uh, and loyal Christianity, how do they live out their so-called faith as well? As we study church history, we're going to study both of those groups. And there's going to be a principle that's going to help guide us through our study. And that principle is a spiritual gift. It's the gift of discernment. Discernment is going to help us understand whether each group that we come across and each person that we come across is truly Christian or not. A classic example of this that we will talk about in the coming episodes is going to be the Emperor Constantine who brought Christianity from being this highly persecuted, uh, really misunderstood religion in the Roman Empire, from taking, taking Christians out of that persecution and making Christianity the state uh, religion of Rome. There is a lot of speculation as to whether or not Constantine was a genuine believer or not. And so we will certainly talk about Constantine later on, but there's just one example of, of many. You could look at any so-called Christian leader throughout the ages, and it really is going to be the fruit of their life that is going to give evidence as to whether or not that individual was in Christ or not. As believers, we need to use discernment. We need to ask the Holy Spirit for help in order to rightly discern each of the scenes that we come across in Christian history. And along with that, there, of course, is a warning for us. And that warning is that church history is messy. It's not squeaky clean. Some things are not so cut and dried. And as with any study of history, there are certain details that are not as black and white as we wish there were. Again, discernment will be very important for us as we consider not just the good of church history, but also the bad and even the ugly. Consider this, if you were going to embark upon a 20-week podcast about the history of your own immediate family, there would be parts of that podcast that would be great and would be wonderful and that you would be proud to share. But there would also be parts of that explanation of your family's history that you would be hesitant to provide every detail regarding those things that happened. There would be skeletons, certainly, in every family closet. Church history is no different. Church history, at best, is the movement throughout the ages of sinners who have been redeemed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even from the greatest of Christians that we will examine and study, we need to recognize there's only one true hero in all of the story of church history, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as we continue on in our study of church history and introducing what, what church history is, I want to get back to that main heading, that main definition that we promised to look at and to consider in this introductory session. I want to talk about the definition of the word ecclesia. The word ecclesia, as I mentioned, is the Greek New Testament word for church. 
It appears some 114 times in the New Testament. And the reason that I want to begin right here with the study of a word, one word in the New Testament, with that word church, is because it is foundational for understanding what any collection of believers really is. There is a definition that's embedded in the original language that I want for us to see and to consider. Well, the first time that we ever see the word church in the New Testament is in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 16 and in verse 18. To set the scene and the context for what is going on in chapter 16 of Matthew, Jesus and his disciples are in the region of Caesarea Philippi. And it's there in Caesarea Philippi that Jesus very intentionally asks his disciples in verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Going on through the passage, we read that the disciples reply with some say John the Baptist, verse 14. Others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Well, Jesus then asked a follow-up question in verse 15, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Jesus wanted to know from his disciples what the world had to say about him, but he was even more interested in what his own followers had to say about his identity. And wouldn't you know it, in verse 16, Simon Peter rises to the occasion for spokesman of the other disciples He was that at all times, wasn't he? For better or for worse, Peter oftentimes had foot and mouth disease, but it was this moment that was one of Peter's greatest shining moments in all the Gospels. Peter says, you are the Christ, verse 16, the son of the living God. Now, I'll pause there for a moment to just briefly comment on the fact that throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen Jesus slowly revealing his identity. We've seen his identity revealed through demons. We've seen his identity revealed through people that he's healed. But this is the most fully orbed definition that truly describes who Christ is up to this point in Matthew. You are the Christ, the Christos in Greek, the Meshiach in Hebrew, the Son, the Weos, of the living God. Verse 17, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, that statement is absolutely foundational for saving faith In its essence, Peter had come to acknowledge who Jesus was, not simply because he had hung around Jesus long enough to put two and two together by watching the miracles that he did and the way that he lived his life and the way that he never sinned. Peter had come to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah of his people, the long-awaited, anointed one who had come to set his people free, not simply because he was a smart man, or because any human teacher had taught that to him, or that it had come to him by means of logical reasoning and deduction. Jesus says to Peter, and he tells Peter and reveals for Peter that the reason why he has proclaimed this weighty truth about Christ is because of the Father, 
Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. When we study church history, what we are studying is the history of all who claim to be in Christ, who claim to be Christian. Well, it would be a good idea for us to examine and to understand exactly what is a Christian. Well, a Christian is anyone to whom the Father reveals the Son by the power of His very Holy Spirit to understand that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the means of salvation. He is God's anointed one. He is God's own son. Jesus is God himself. Again, these are weighty truths that the human mind can't fully comprehend. But every true, genuine Christian throughout the ages will confess, like Peter, that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. And Jesus came and accomplished exactly what he came to accomplish. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. He uses Peter's great confession in order to reveal a truth, not just about Peter as an individual believer, but about the collection of every believer in the Lord Jesus, from the first to the last. Jesus says in verse 17, he answers Peter and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. And the word Peter is obviously Petros in the original language taken from the Greek word that means rock. You are Peter. And then he uses a wordplay to say, and on this rock, I will build my church. Again, there's a wordplay. Peter is, or Jesus is using the name that he's just nicknamed Peter with in order to reveal a truth. And that truth is, Peter, the, the message that has been delivered to you from my Father who is in heaven is the same message on which I'm going to build my church. And he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, there again is the first time that we see the Greek word ecclesia in the entire New Testament. It's the first time that the idea of the church is introduced in the New Testament. So what does that mean? What does Jesus say that upon this rock I will build my ecclesia? Well, the Greek word ecclesia is actually from two Greek words. It's from a prefix ek which means from or out of. And then the rest of the word, klesia, is actually borrowed from a Greek word, kaleo, which you can kind of hear in Greek what that word means for us in English. Kaleo means to call. So from, out of, to call. The church, by definition, embedded within the word ecclesia itself, means the called out ones of God. And it's amazing that that very context fits nicely with what Jesus had just explained to Peter, that the Father had revealed the truth of the Son's identity to Peter. And thus, Peter, like the other disciples, were Christ's called out ones. They were called out of the world for a purpose. They were called out of the world and called into the kingdom 
of Christ. Jonathan Edwards said, Christ appears gloriously above Satan and all his instruments in upholding his church, even from its first establishment, through all the powerful attempts that have been made against it by earth and hell. You know, it's amazing that there are many entities that have come and gone since the founding of Christ Church some 2,000 years ago. Great world empires have risen and have fallen. I mean, for all intents and purposes, this, this passage comes to us quite literally out of the context of the Roman Empire, which at that point was the greatest empire that the world had ever seen. And yet what happened to Rome? Well, just a few centuries later, there was no such thing as the Roman Empire as it was known in those days. And yet the church is the one entity that will not die, that will not fade away, that hell itself will not wrestle and prevail against. So as we come to a close with this first session, I want to just give a simple English definition for ecclesia. We, we mentioned that you could very simply define it as the called out ones, those who have been called out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the way that I've chosen to define the word ecclesia for our purposes. The ecclesia is the redemptive collection of all Christians who have been called out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of Christ. As we survey church history, as we consider the various movements and events and moments from the dawn of the church up through our present day, what will we, excuse me, what we will be seeking to consider is who the genuine called out ones of the Lord Jesus Christ are and how have they faithfully walked with him in the context of their lives throughout the history of the church.